Welcome to Season 2 of Insurgency Unmasked. Join us as we explore the hidden stories and complexities of the Ukrainian conflict and listen in as we deconstruct the war in Ukraine step by step, expert by expert. Welcome back to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked with the Modern Insurgent. Today we are joined by Liam Coyle and we're going to be discussing the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. And we're going to be exploring the origins of these self-proclaimed separatist entities, their objectives and their relationships with Russia and Ukraine. So, hi, Liam. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. It's an honor to have you on. Thanks for having me. So we'll kick off. Uh, Who are you and what do you do to live, thrive and survive? Well, I'm Liam Coyle, uh, originally an automotive student. Now I'm pursuing uh, photojournalism uh, here in Paris. Uh, pretty much a lot of my writing experience is just with Modern Insurgent themselves. I joined, oh Lord, close to a year ago now, if not a year. Uh, and pretty much that's been most of my writing and conflict journalism experience. Fantastic. So let's kick off with the origins of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. So how, how have these entities kind of come into existence? Well, to really start talking about this, we have to go back to around 2012 when the uh, EU-Ukraine Association Agreement was first kind of drafted and put into play. This was meant to bring the uh, Ukrainian kind of government, economic, financial, judicial systems, things like that, more in line with the EU uh, systems to then, I would say, eventually then bring them fully over into the EU themselves. This was kind of in play for about a year or so. Then the then president, Viktor Yanukovych, and I'm just going to preface this, first of all, I'm only an English speaker. I'm going to butcher a lot of these Russian names. So sorry for that, first of all, but uh, this was Viktor Yanukovych had refused the agreement, and this then kicked off the kind of infamous Euromaidan protests. These were mass demonstrations within the uh, Kiev's independent square. Originally started off, as most protests do, peacefully, things along the lines. And then over time, a lot of police repression as things went on. And this was mainly by the Barakut which is Ukrainians riot police in a sense, the guys that you've definitely seen pictures of them. They got their blue uniforms, big old like black riot helmets on and arm pads. And this was them. I mean, you definitely saw the videos of just them going, beating up protesters, things along the lines. And that kind of police repression really kicked off the, what is the revolution of dignity, which pretty much same goals as the year of Maidan, which was to, uh, sign the EU association agreement, then uh, impeach Yanukovych, bring back the 2004 Constitution of Ukraine amendments. And uh, at the time, instead of joining the EU association, they wanted to, or Yanukovych at least, wanted to join the Eurasian, uh, blanking on the name, Eurasian kind of commitment union, I believe it was called. And that was led by Russia, a lot of Russian allies, and pretty much a trade agreement between all of them. So their goals, like I said, uh, join the EU association, impeach Petrovich, uh, bring on the 20, 2004 agreements of the constitution, and then refuse that Eurasian agreement. And this kind of, when things really started getting kicking off with everything, 
the protesters around, I think it was February 18th and the 20th, began storming, or not storming, moving and advancing towards the parliament buildings within Ukraine. And police opened fire on them, sniper rifles, things like that. And things started really falling apart quickly. Next day on the 21st, uh, Yanukovych had kind of uh, signed an agreement to bring in an interim government. And then uh, that night fled the city. Uh, then was it uh, the next day after that, the Ukrainian government had fully officially removed Yanukovych and brought in a Pershenko. Again, butchering the name, but he was then the uh, president of Ukraine. And a lot of this, uh, you know, the people in Crimea seeing everything going on, people in Russia, and especially Putin himself seeing this all going on, he had stated that they needed to start working to bring Crimea back into Russia. And then that's the whole infamous Crimea annexation. That it's definitely not. It plays a very important role within how everything went down within Donetsk and Luhansk, because it was kind of the template of how they would want to then do things there. Yeah. This was, it definitely went a lot smoother in Crimea because it was the first time that it had happened in Ukraine itself, but it started off with kind of around the time that the Revolution of Dignity was really completing their goals and winding down a little bit. Uh, demonstrations within Crimea kicked off. Definitely nowhere as big or as kind of harsh as what happened in Kiev, but they it was uh, mainly civilians, stuff like that, out on the streets, kind of protesting against joining that uh, EU association agreement. And this was kind of when everything started going down with Russia and Ukraine themselves. On the uh, 27th of tw February 27th of uh, 2014, unmarked Russian special forces had then entered Crimea. This was convoys upon convoys of men, just driving in trucks, armored vehicles, things like that. Kind of, it definitely seemed like a full war at that point, but they had uh, gone in and completely unmarked. So no Russian insignia, no rankings, I believe, or anything like that. And, but armed to the teeth and in clearly Russian uniforms. So they'd gone in and it was pretty much kind of no resistance whatsoever. Rolled in, surrounded uh, almost all Ukrainian military bases within the area. And this is important, those bases at least, because that is where the uh, Ukrainian naval headquarters is, or at least was. And also just across the way, the uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet headquarters was there. So they kind of had a base of operations to run things out of. So a lot of... I don't really know if exact numbers of how many Russian troops was ever kind of disclosed, or at least I couldn't find it. But to say the least, a lot of Russian troops all surrounded Ukrainian bases and uh, pretty much blocked them from leaving. There was a naval blockade set up at the harbors that the Ukrainian Navy was in, and they were just kind of stuck there. Couldn't do anything, didn't want to shoot or do anything like that because might cause a war, which we all know what happened with that. But uh the yeah, Russian military just sat out there for, let's say, possibly a week or at very least a few days. And then uh, OSEC observ observers started saying, OK, we're going to come in, make sure everything's going smoothly. The day that the observers arrive, all Russian military just magically disappear from outside the bases. 
they're gone and then replaced with a lot of pro-Russian civilians who were pretty much playing the same exact role. Just sit outside the bases, don't let anyone go in, don't let anyone leave. And that went on for quite a bit. Uh, Ukrainians, at least military within side of Crimea, again, they really put up no resistance. They just sat in their bases, let things go on. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, military on the mainland, they had started to construct roadblocks and a massive trench line leading from the peninsula to mainland Ukraine. And so did the uh, Russian forces. They had started putting their roadblocks kind of a few miles away from the Ukrainian ones. It was interesting with those because they were uh, manned a lot of the times by the Barracoot officers. So it was a lot of the riot police then showing up on working hand in hand with the Russians. You can kind of see where their alliances were with a lot of things. But this said, uh, after a certain amount of time, the OSEC observers had left and things kind of started kicking off a little bit. The uh, Russian military resurrounded the bases and they wanted to kind of move things along. So they're, there's I, at least I haven't been able to find any videos of it, but reports of their men jumping over the fences, kind of harassing the Ukrainian troops, just hoping to get someone that was a bit on edge that day to fire something off so they can have an excuse. But this went on a little bit longer. Ukrainian military, uh, I believe uh, some stuff within the uh, government of Crimea really started to happen. I'm not fully kind of in touch with a lot of the things that happened in Crimea there, but uh, pretty much they had generated their own government where Crimea was now independent after a referendum they held. And I mean, not too long later had then fully joined Russia. So we can all see what the independence part was really for. But And because of all this, uh, after the referendum, Ukrainian military had said to all their troops that were stationed there, you can either stay in Crimea, you're not a part of the Ukrainian military anymore if you do, or we'll evacuate you back to the mainland, you can continue serving. And then uh, during this time, this definitely a few days before the main like kind of evacuation happened, a lot of protests then started kicking off in uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and uh, I believe maybe a bit later on in the Kharkiv region. So they, all the pro-Russian people that were within the Eastern Ukraine said, oh, wow, they really didn't put up much resistance. We could probably pull something off like this ourselves. And that's what we saw with, it had originally started as, uh, in Donetsk especially, just a protest surrounding the uh, regional administration building. And a few days after that, they had fully stormed the building and taken it over. The government that was there, the Ukrainian government, had moved and relocated to a hotel in the area. And the uh, pro-Russians had pretty much barricaded the whole place off, roadblocks all over the street. A bunch of, um, I believe they, definitely in Luhansk, I'm not 100% sure about Donetsk, but they were uh, Soviet-Afghan war veterans who had taken over the building, had control of it with firearms that they had, I don't know, at least definitely in uh, Donetsk, they had kind of just come across. A lot of the times they say that they had uh, their own men bought them and things like that. But they had taken the building. Uh, there was always a lot of paranoia, especially during the early days that uh, the Ukrainian military is going to raid us. It's going to be a bloodbath and things like that. But after a while, 
pretty much only thing that really happened there in retaliation of them was the electricity for the building got cut off and uh, people with inside there, the uh, pro-Russians began to really start holding meetings and trying to figure out how to create a government and what they want to do and things like that. So this was, let me see if I can find the April 7th, 2014, uh, was when the Donetsk People's Republic was officially declared. And I believe I have his name somewhere in my notes, but uh, their main kind of leader of the whole thing, he was, I'm pretty sure in charge for quite a long time there. He kind of ran the whole show and you could, there was a vice series that uh, had happened there called Russian Roulette. And their reporter was in the building while they were doing all this. And it's quite interesting seeing the Donetsk People's Republic get created. Definitely a lot of kind of incoherent yelling going on. But this guy stood up, kind of organized everyone, a natural leader in a sense. But during this time, uh, maybe a few days after the official declaration of the Donetsk People's Republic, the Luhansk People's Republic was kind of getting off the ground and getting started as well. Uh, people over there had stormed the SBU building, which is kind of like a, I don't know, secret service, not secret service, but a basically giant police headquarters in a sense. They'd taken over that building and kind of the surrounding area of it, and things played out relatively the same to what happened in Donetsk, a bunch of what they say unarmed men at night went stormed the building took it over and this being a police headquarters they just took all the weapons and stuff that was in there so we at least can figure out where they got their guns from but same thing played out they got their weapons they barricaded the whole building off started making demands of independence and things like that and a bunch of civilians out front that were blocking any sort of police retaliation it was interesting with the uh, people in Luhansk and the SVU building they had put out a video after their electric got cut out saying Ukrainian military or anyone like that if you come in here it's going to be a bloodbath so they were these guys I know for sure had claimed that they were Soviet uh, Afghan war veterans so kind of definitely worrisome if something were to go down you know it probably wouldn't end too well and uh, stuff had happened in uh, Kharkiv there was similar things but that never really took off I not sure exactly what went down, but uh, people stormed a building, ended up getting uh, removed from it. And one of the bigger ones that had happened was uh, Slavyansk, I believe the town was. And this, pretty much the entire town was taken over by pro-Russian rebels. They'd kind of taken over the main kind of government buildings and things like that, but had also established roadblocks outside of the entire area. And later on, as the war progressed, this town became a stronghold for the uh, People's Republic of Donetsk and People's Republic of Luhansk. But that's around relative timeline of their original starting. So would it be fair to say they are completely reliant on Russia? Definitely as uh, time moved on, it's questionable to say for those first initial weeks or months when they were really storming the buildings, but as they had established themselves as independent countries, they, I believe it was 2014 later on in the year, the Russians were giving the people of Donetsk and Luhansk Russian passports. So 
you can kind of say they were, if anything, helping out quite a bit. And then how does the local population react? It was definitely very split. A lot of people like to say, I mean, uh, the Donbass in general is, uh, when it was part of the Soviet Union, was a strong territory for their industrials and things like that. And they had immigrated a lot of people over there to work in these factories, especially after World War II. But there, in the modern age and when that was going on a lot, there was very interesting. They're pro-Russian people, of course, who were what it seemed like from a lot of videos and things that came out were more of an older generation that were around during the Soviet Union. But there was still a kind of strong pro-Ukrainian sentiment within the area. The kind of argument that was going on was pro-Russians were saying, oh, we're controlled by oligarchs, so if we go to Russia, everything will be fine. Then the more pro-Ukrainian people saying, we're screwed either way we go, so we might as well not be with Russia. But it was definitely, I was surprised, a lot of pro-Ukrainian sentiment. And how, how do the two people's republics connect with the wider pro-Russian kind of history in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Well, these are, they had originally kind of started off with uh, being an independent state, but similar to what we had seen with Crimea is you're only using that as an interim to then join Russia. And like I was saying before, their history, at least with being a main part of the industrial region within Russia after the Second World War and having a lot of just native Russians living within the country themselves or the region. But they had, there was definitely still split between two people. The pro-Ukrainians and pro-Russians. It certainly led to a kind of brutal meat grinder of a front line. Oh, yes, it definitely has. And (laughs) it was like that since, I would say, kind of hostilities really kicked off to where it wasn't so much a police force versus a civilian rebel group in a sense, and it was really military against military. And that was kind of the main show of that was the Donetsk airport which I can get into that later if you want so that was definitely a very interesting battle mm-hmm. and how's the international community looked at the two people's republics during their um especially like the what I was speaking of earlier with the videos of you can see the people with inside Donetsk really trying to have those meetings and get things all rolling they had originally called for, I think in particular, or at least stated outright, they wanted EU recognition, they wanted uh, US recognition and Russian recognition. But I believe there were a couple countries, I'm blanking on them now, that had originally recognized them once they had kind of declared that they were independent states. But it wasn't till, uh, I believe, until just a few days before the Russian-Ukraine war had kicked off that Russia actually said and declared, oh, we recognize the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. So it took them quite a bit, but they always had the help from Russia there. And I really wish I could remember the countries, but there were some countries from 2014 and 2017 that had originally recognized them, but these were mainly Russian allied countries. Mm. From memory, it's uh, Venezuela, Syria... Ah, Um, 
North Korea did for a bit, I think, and then you've got mm-hmm. one or two of the Pacific Islands that normally get involved on that. So yeah, cool. definitely. I remember Venezuela. That definitely sounds right. I'm remembering that now. That was a very interesting one for me. I'll be honest. <laughs> It's, it's similar to the places that recognize like Abkhazia and South Ossetia mm-hmm. in Georgia. So, yeah, that's actually very interesting. Uh, I was going to maybe bring this up a bit earlier, but the kind of what you saw in Abkhazia, I had uh, written an article about them as well, but they, it, it was almost a test run in a sense for what was going to happen in Crimea and especially kind of what happened in Donetsk is you had rebel groups uh, take over large sections of a city and then the Russian military, at least for Abkhazia, really didn't get involved until much later. And you saw kind of what happened within Donetsk and the Donbass in general happen uh, in Abkhazia with Russian forces were there. This is especially later on, but they apparently didn't really act at all. They just mm. stated, okay, we're sitting around, we're making sure things are peaceful, but yeah. things aren't peaceful if artillery shells are flying around every day. And like a North Caucasian like militia fighting yeah. on behalf of everyone. Yeah, they're just running around with guns. It's usually not the, yeah. at least a normal day where I'm from. <laughs> so um Let's discuss some of the major battles then. Let's discuss mm-hmm. the airport and any other big big ones that have caught the eye. Well, the there was technically two battles within uh, the Donetsk airport. First one was uh, much earlier. I, let me see if I can find the date here real quick. It was uh, the 26th to the 27th of May, 2014. And this was kind of it played similar to or at least somewhat similar to kind of what happened within Kharkiv of uh, at night armed men infiltrated in this case instead of a government building the main terminal building within the Donetsk International Airport and uh, they had secured the area these guys were all fully armed and everything a lot of people had suspected there's not 100% sure but a lot of people have suspected that this was a uh, Russian special forces. They were still kind of, there's videos of like security cameras of them moving through. Definitely very hard to see because it's dark, but they were more dressed in kind of ragtag uniform. So it's definitely hard to say, but they had uh, moved in at night, secured the main terminal building and kind of held out the area. The next day, the Ukrainian military had started to try pushing in there and retaking it. There's throughout the town, you can hear gunshots going off there, some pretty heavy fighting from what it sounded like. And there was at one point where Ukrainian military was on the outside and there was reinforcements of rebel kind of, uh, yeah, Donetsk People's Republic militia units trying to push and kind of reinforce the people within the airport. Uh, Next day, kind of, at night, the uh, Ukrainian military claimed that they had taken the airport back. There was still shooting heard throughout the next morning and things like that. But it uh, inevitably ended up with Ukrainian airborne, uh, I believe, going and uh, dropping troops on the tarmacs and things like that by helicopter and retaking the building. So only lasted two days, but kind of uh, showed what was going to happen in the future. Then with the uh, second battle, that was a bit later on. Fighting had definitely picked up at this point. Your front lines kind of had formed, and there was 
uh, artillery had become a bit too likely of a doctrine or a bit too used as a doctrine at this point. And this was September uh, 28th, 2014 to January 21st, 2015. So it was a three month battle lasted quite a bit. And this was the Ukrainians now kind of those sides had flipped. Ukrainian military had control of the airport. They were holding it and it, pretty much just three months of getting blown up by tank shells, blown up by artillery. At this time, the terminal building that had originally been taken was completely destroyed. Tarmac and runway were absolutely obliterated. It, just, it was unusable by any sort of aircraft, even if they wanted to get that close, which with it, they would most likely get shot down at that point. But this had gone on for, like I was saying, about three months and it was just uh, almost used as what Bakhmut was used as in a sense more recently kind of a ideological battle or maybe that's probably the wrong word for it but uh meant to show we can hold this area for the people uh, of ukraine and then the people of donetsk saying okay we can take this back this is kind of our first show of force in a sense mm. very but symbolic was, yeah symbolic that's what i was looking for <laughs> but yeah, they, it ended with, I believe, the, pretty much all the buildings in the end, and especially the main control tower, which was inside of the airport complex, being completely obliterated, which that was being used as their kind of Ukrainian military staging area and their headquarters. And uh, at this time, you could really see the people of Donetsk really kind of getting their doctrine set, like I was saying with the artillery especially, and using uh, heavy ordnance like tanks and things along the lines as kind of uh, fire support units. So they would have tanks sit up. It was a very open area, of course, because it's an airport. So have tanks sit way far back in some tree line somewhere, just pound the building. And then uh, I believe the main kind of final battle that had happened was kind of interesting how it played out in a sense of you really had one building that the Ukrainians were still holding on to, and the uh, People's Republic had started, they kind of shelled the building earlier as preparing it, and then covered the area with the smoke artillery, used that cover to then move infantry and light armor, like BTRs and things along the lines, into the area and finally take control of the building. I believe it was uh, kind of crazy numbers for the amount of people that had actually made it out. I'm forgetting exactly, but it, definitely a harsh battle. A lot of people had died during that on both sides. And that was really the first major and kind of widespread attention battle that had happened within there. Hmm. Other than that, it was a lot of kind of just frontline trench warfare like we're seeing right now. People on one side of a big ass field shooting at people on the other side of a big field. And that's where a lot of more humanitarian things came into play because both sides were too scared to push up. So they were just launching artillery back and forth at each other and using, I forget when the grad was made, but using a rocket launcher from 40, 50 plus years ago isn't the most accurate thing. And when your enemy positions are right next to a town, it tends to lead to a bit of collateral damage to say the least. But that's kind of how things had played out for quite a few years since 2014 to well, we saw with the uh, Russian invasion. It was a lot of sitting on uh, your line, other guys sitting on his line. 
one of the other kind of uh, is definitely widespread with media attention thing that happened was the downing of MH17, the Malaysian Airlines flight. Hmm. And this, I mean, you saw it all over the news. I believe it was uh, 200 and around 300 dead. Uh, all crew and uh, passengers had died during the flight. And this was, it definitely ping-ponged back and forth of who had done it uh, for a while while the investigation was going on. And this kind of really, I would say, made tensions a lot worse between the uh, Ukrainian government and the Donetsk People's Republic. There was, at one point, this was definitely later on, that the Ukrainian government had announced they would be running an amnesty program for rebels within the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, and uh, I believe granting them independence as well. But there was a fine line that was written there. You're excluded from this amnesty program if you were involved in kind of grievous crimes, such as the downing of MH17. But it was definitely very interesting seeing that kind of ping pong back and forth of the blame. And as it turned out, it was the Donuts People's Republic. They had used a, it's the uh, MK37 Buk, which NATO name of SA-11. I'm a military plane nerd, so I like all those NATO reporting names. But that's uh, about a 70-kilogram warhead launched from within uh, Donuts People's Republic. And it had originated from the specific launcher itself. From It was the, I believe, 50 third uh, anti-air division of the russian federation yeah the 53rd anti-aircraft missile brigade so that was originally a russian weapon i guess handed over lent to the people of uh donuts people's republic and it kind of before then i'd say definitely within the couple months leading up to that downing they had uh, people's republic of donetsk or the donuts people's republic had scored some hits against Ukrainian military aircraft that were flying through the area. I think at least two of them had been shot down, and this was kind of a big moral victory for everyone there. Of, oh, they don't control the skies. We have something that can take them out. They let that get a bit ahead of them and ended up shooting down the Malaysian flight, which that led to a that really kind of demonized the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic within the eyes of the international community as well. That's kind of so why they never really got help, their independence. Oh, definitely not. I mean, I'm forgetting exactly what countries. I believe this might have happened in Syria, but something along the lines of uh, passenger aircraft had been shot down. And we see kind of how Syria is looked at in the international community, especially the Western community. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. With You have these kind of big breakout moments within these kind of big headlines and things like that inside of a war that was for since 2014 to 2022, just really un, not uneventful. That's definitely not the right way of saying it, but kind of things didn't move a lot to say the least. The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. So we've covered the history really well there. So now let's jump on to how, how the actual Russian invasion of Ukraine <laughs> affected the DPR and LPR. 
at it. The initial uh, first few days of the invasion, we all saw the videos of February 24th, and a lot of that, the DPR and LPR really weren't directly involved in per se. This didn't happen until a bit later when I believe it was uh, the Russian government had called it the second strategic phase of their invasion. And this was what really focused on the Donbass region in total. Uh, the Russian government, I believe, said that their main goal there was to ensure independence for the DPR and LPR. And they were pretty involved within the frontline fighting of that. This, a lot of it happened. The first stage was a lot within the Luhansk region and they were involved with some of the more major battles within the area. This was from, I believe, yeah, the second phase. It kind of initially really more of the battles kicked off around March of uh, 2022. And they were in, I'm going to butcher all these names, so I apologize, but Rubenese, uh, Kerminia, uh, Papasana, uh, the big one, which I'm pretty sure you saw in quite a few headlines, which is uh, Servodonetsk and uh, Lushankia. Those were pretty much from March till June was the main push within the Luhansk region. And the LPR militia, they were kind of fighting right alongside there with the uh, Russian military. I believe the main group, the main like uh, regimen within it was uh, the 11th rifle uh, regiment of the Cossack Guard or something along the lines. I forget their exact name, but they were the ones that saw most of the fighting. And it, a lot of the time now, I mean, the war in general has really wound down to a pretty big stalemate. So a lot of the times now it's kind of back to what they were doing from 2014 till then. So a lot of sitting in their own trench line, shooting at the other guy. And for the uh, DPR, they're, the, like I was saying, the first initial phase was mainly focusing on the Luhansk region. And then the second part was then now focusing back on the Donetsk region. And DPR was, these are more of the, I don't know, bigger names, if you would say that. Uh, and it was Pitsky, which DPR was heavily involved with in that. And um, some of the other ones, Markaya, uh, Kodama. And uh, there was also a big one everyone was talking about most recently in Bakhmut. And this, both uh, LPR and DPR troops were involved with that. But a lot of the times they were, during these initial offensives, they were right there next to them. They were frontline units. They were going in with BTRs, rifles, things like that, and going and doing some of the more street-to-street -street fighting. Hmm. And then that kind of leads on nicely to the final question. If it's been such a stalemate in the area for the last almost decade, mm -hmm. what does the future look like? It, From what I've seen with... Uh, some, especially what we saw within Afghanistan with the U.S. and things like that, uh, kind of the harsh reality of things is this could really draw out to be another 20 or so odd year war. It might not look the same as it does currently, but let's say if 
Russia kind of, uh, this wouldn't be exactly what they want, but they are able to push through, take a majority of Ukraine. They're going to be sitting with a pretty big kind of insurgent resistance to them. So it's going to be what the U.S. saw within Afghanistan and all that with they're not fighting large militaries on these large front lines. They're going to be sitting in, if they kind of follow doctrine of the U.S., they're going to be sitting in their bases, going out on patrols, and then getting screwed up by IEDs and kind of rebel groups going and doing guerrilla things like they do. But this, I, to a certain point, the more favorable answer, which maybe not favorable for the people of Ukraine, but at least favorable for less people dying is uh, they come to some sort of agreement. Uh, Russia then takes control of the Donbass region, which I believe they've already, they've recognized them. I know for sure that was uh, just a couple days before the initial invasion started. And I believe as of, I want to say late last year, I'm blanking on the exact date, but they had uh, kind of officially not fully joined, but kind of were an independent state recognized and then are some sort of connecting state to Russia itself. And this, uh, when that first happened, that was uh, definitely a big worry of people thinking, oh, Russia now has an excuse to say Ukrainian military is within Russia. They're going to now take a lot more drastic measures and things like that. But uh, it's if things go with it definitely very uh, favorable for the western perspective of as things go towards uh, the ukrainian side it's could be there's definitely going to be a lot of kind of knocking down on people that were originally a part of the donetsk people's republic and Luhansk people's republic and it's going to be a quite unstable region for a long time to say the least and that's quite a dark point to end on but i think you're exactly right to be honest it's kind of hard to find a light side of war yeah. usually going to end on a dark side no matter what there's, n there's never normally a silver lining is there it's hard to find which is a shame but it's been an honor <laughs> to have you on liam and thank you very much for being here so is there Got anything it. you'd like to promote or plug uh other than modern insurgent Definitely go check out all of our articles. We got a lot of great people writing for us. And of course, the podcast here. I would say if you want to get kind of a feel for the day to day things of what happened, especially during the buildup of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, I'd mentioned, uh, I know this might be a bit controversial, but Vice News' series that they did on it. It's a long series, but it really it shows you what was going on as things were really kicking off. And then I guess lastly, my Instagram, coil underscore MI. You can see all my protest photos and other band concert photos and things like that. Hopefully I get some more interesting conflict-oriented stuff in the future. But yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great. Thank you very much. So everyone, you know where to find us, at Modern Insurgent on pretty much every social media you can think of. Thank you very much. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported.